Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Uh, Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, John chapter 6. Uh, we've been walking through a, a little series going through the I Am Statements of Jesus in the book of John. And uh, I've, I've recognized that we could, uh, we could be here forever. Uh, we're not going to, but we could be here forever. <laughs> uh, it seems like there's such just phenomenal depth uh, in, in each of these. Uh, but <clears throat> last week we looked at the I Am Statement of I Am the Bread of Life uh, in John chapter 6. And we were mainly looking at the idea of the whole manna and how... The picture of manna in the Old Testament is a picture or a uh, metaphor or a symbol or a foreshadow of Jesus in the new. And what I want to do is actually want to walk through John chapter 6 and just kind of give a second piece to this, and then next week we'll move on to the light. Uh, But again, John chapter 6 opens with the feeding of the 5,000. So here's this huge crowd. They've been following Jesus, and it says that Jesus had compassion upon them. And here's this massive group again, about 5,000 men, which means probably, you know, we're talking 15, 20,000 people as a whole. Uh, and so they're following Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, we should, we should have a lunch break. And you know how disciples eat, because we've seen how you eat. And, <laughs> and obviously, there's, a little, there's, there's, a, there's some concern. And so uh, Jesus, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey, uh, go, go grab some bread, and we'll, we'll start feeding people. And of course, uh, in verse 5, he asks a question. In verse 7, Philip says, you recognize that basically an entire year's wage would not be enough to feed all these people. Like, where on earth are we going to get all this this food? Now, at this time, uh, verse 8, one of the disciples, uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, comes up and says, hey, I just found a kid who has a Happy Meal. So let's steal it from him right? Could you imagine, here is 5,000 men plus women and children, and it seems like out of that entire crowd, there is only one little boy who is smart enough to bring lunch. And you realize he's a boy, right? He, he's, not, he's not packing five massive loaves of bread, you know, and two massive, you know, 50-pound fish, right? He's, it's, it is a happy meal of sorts, right? It's, it's five little pieces of bread, probably little pita things, right? And a couple small, likely sardine-sized fish, right? We're, we're talking fish and chips. We're talking Happy Meal, right? A few chicken nuggets and some french fries kind of stuff in our, in our context you know, or in, in our world. <clears throat> and of course, Andrew says, well, here's this boy who has some, but what, what is that? Like, that's just enough for the little boy. So obviously, this is not enough to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. How do we know that? What we've seen you eat. And obviously, most of you could eat more than two chicken nuggets and five french fries. And that's Andrew's point. He goes, what good is this little sack lunch? And Jesus says, that's okay. Let's, let's take it. And now, I, the passage doesn't say this. I'm presuming Jesus turned to the little boy, got down on his knee, and said, can I, can I have your lunch? 
I, I promise it'll be worth it. Just, just watch what I'm going to do. And somehow the boy's probably captivating and goes, sure, let's, see, let's do it. And Jesus takes it and he gives thanks and he hands it out. And of course they start, you know, breaking and passing and all this kind of stuff. And this miracle, this phenomenal miracle takes place where 5,000 men plus women and children can have as much as they want. And at the end, they have 12 basketfuls of food. And again, baskets back in that day, we're not talking like our little, little baskets. They're probably big baskets. And we're, you realize at the end of this whole thing, there was far more than what they started with, which is a beautiful demonstration of the life of Jesus. Now, at this point, the whole crowd who's been following Jesus and who's been seeking Jesus, they're going, this is phenomenal. Could you imagine what would take place in our culture, in our society, if we had a king who could always give us Happy Meals whenever we wanted them? That we don't actually have to till the ground, we don't have to harvest the, the grain, we don't have to you know, uh, grind the grain, we don't have to bake, bake the bread. We could just show up to Jesus and he just consistently just throwing out bread. That would be phenomenal. And so it says <clears throat> uh, in verse 15 that they were going to make him king by force. That here are the men and these women and children, and they recognize what, what Jesus can do for them. And so they said, we want him as king. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus is the king. He is the king of all kings. And yet they were not interested in him being a king for who he is. They were interested in him being a king for what he could do for them. And Jesus, recognizing this propensity, looks at his 12 disciples and say, I do not want you influenced by this. And so what does he do? He puts them on a boat, sends them into the middle of the Sea of Galilee to get them away from this influence. Where, where does he go? He gets away from the influence, and he goes up onto, on the, up onto the mountain to spend time with the Father in prayer. In other words, he's silencing the voice of the crowd so that he nor the disciples are influenced by the pressure of let's make him king by force. And again, I mentioned this last week, but I find it fascinating that here is Jesus, who, and my guess is the presumption is that the, the storm is coming. You realize the safest place for the disciples, according to Jesus, is in a boat on the middle of the lake in the middle of a storm, rather being in the middle of a crowd with that influence. So here's this big storm. <clears throat> Jesus is praying. Eventually, he comes walking upon the waves, Woo, which would have been amazing. Uh, the Matthew's account says that Peter looks out and says, who are you? Thinking it's a ghost, which I don't know what you want to do with that. But uh, finally realizes it's Jesus. And uh, Peter says, if you're really Jesus, have me come out with you. Right? And so Peter walks on the water, and then he gets so distracted by the winds and the waves. In other words, he does not keep his focus in the proper place. He starts to sink. Jesus grabs him, pulls him back up. Right? So that, that's all taking place in Matthew's account. So in John, there's a big storm. Jesus walks on the water. The moment Jesus gets in the boat, they find themselves already on land, which is a phenomenal miracle in and of itself. And of course, you've seen Star Trek. You know how that works. Just pop in, pop out. And in verse 22, it says, we pick up the story again with the crowd. In verse 22, uh, here are these people who saw Jesus not get in the boat but they recognize that Jesus is no longer on the mountain, so they go searching for him. So they, they track him down. He's over in Capernaum, which is in the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And they say, hey, Jesus, uh, how'd you get here? And then eventually they, they, they kind of, after some conversation, they get to the point of saying, hey, 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 
Jesus, it's breakfast time, and we, we've, been, we've been out all, all night long. You, hey, you fed us yesterday. Hey, you know what you should do this morning? Woo! You should give us some bread! Now, isn't it interesting that, again, the whole crowd, the whole focus of the crowd is not who Jesus is. The whole focus of the crowd is what can Jesus do for me? And just as a side note, do you realize how often we in the church have that same thought process? That we're less concerned about who Jesus is and we're more concerned about what he can do for us. And you can see that if you just listen to our own prayers. find that fascinating. Uh, in verse 26, Jesus says, Hey, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Hey, you were hungry. I filled you up. Now, hey, you do not care about any of this stuff. All you want is some free bread. And they go, hey, it's Passover season. Uh, at the very beginning of chapter 6, it said the Passover, the feast of the Passover was near. And they said, hey, so Moses is on the mind, right? Passover time. We're thinking about Moses. And they says, you know what? It's Passover time. Jesus, hey, speaking of signs, why, why don't you give us a sign like Moses? Moses gave us a sign. What did he give us? Ooh, bread from heaven. Yeah, this manna stuff came down, and we got to eat our feel. Hey, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, give us a sign like Moses did. Now, it is funny to me that Jesus already gave that sign the day before. And in less than 24 hours, again, here they are pursuing Jesus. Again, not for who he is. They're pursuing him for what he can do for them. And now they're trying to manipulate Jesus by using, hey, 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 if you think you're a prophet, hey, if you think you're who you think you are, well, give us a sign and prove it. Fill our stomachs. And Jesus, which I think is the whole key of the passage in verse 35, says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus begins to give clarity to the story in Exodus 16 about the manna. Again, he says, hey, you recognize that back in that day, you were grumbling. Hey, you were complaining. Hey, you were just going, how are we going to survive this thing? Hey, let's go back to Egypt. Because at least in Egypt, we had, you know, onions and leeks and all this great stuff. So, hey, Jesus, why, why, don't, you, uh, why don't you do that? And Jesus says, hey, I'm not doing that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, Moses gave you bread. Sorry, it was not Moses who gave you the bread. It was God who gave you the bread. So the sign did not come from Moses. The sign came from God. And Jesus begins to give more emphasis or clarity to the manna thing. And he says, do you recognize I am that? That I am the manna. Now, I do find it fascinating. We walked this through last week a little bit. But in, in John 6, every time Jesus used the word manna, it's not for what he calls that stuff on the ground. He's referring to what they call that stuff on the ground. And again, if you turn back to Exodus 16, it's interesting. I hear, hear the people complaining. They go to Moses and say, hey, we're about to die. How are we going to eat? And God says, all right, Moses, I'm going to give those people the bread from heaven. And of course, this white flaky stuff was on the ground. They looked at it and they go, manna. Which means, what is it? And isn't it interesting? Every time we called it manna, in some undercurrent, we're basically just always asking the question, what is it? 
And it's almost like you're raising your, your lip, kind of going, ooh, here it is again. Manna mush and manna bread and, you know, manna porridge and, and manna cakes and manna pancakes and manna, 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 manna. And so every time we call it manna, isn't it interesting that what we're really emphasizing is the, we don't know what it is, but at least we have something. Jesus never calls that stuff manna. He calls it the bread from heaven. In fact, it's interesting, in uh, Exodus 16, verse 15, I think it is, God gives clarity. Moses speaks and he says, this, what you have is bread from heaven. And yet people kept calling it manna. I just find that really fascinating. So here is Jesus and he says, you recognize that I am that bread from heaven. Five times he mentions the fact that he has come down from heaven in the passage. Uh, let me give you the verses if you want them really quick. It's verses 33, 38, 50, 51, 58. Sorry if you're trying to write that down. <laughs> but he says that he has come down from heaven. And five times he says that the Father has sent him. In verses 29, 38, 39, 44, and 57. Listen to the recording later. You'll get him. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting that Jesus' emphasis is the fact that he is that which has come down from heaven. He is that which the Father has given him. And it's a beautiful parallel of the manna stuff. But he's saying, I'm not the what is it. I am that which it is. I am bread from heaven. Hey, the, the Father has given this. I've come down from heaven, and I am that which satisfies. So I'm not a what is it, because I'm revealing to you who I am. And again, I think it's beautiful that Jesus doesn't use the language that I am the manna. He says, that stuff that you called manna, I am that which it points to, but I am the bread from heaven. I am that which was God, that God was intending to give you all along. Now, they do not understand this. And of course, they keep arguing back and forth. And Jesus says, let me clarify this for you. Unless you eat of my flesh, and unless you drink of my blood, you will not have life. They misunderstand the whole thing. They're thinking he's talking about cannibalism, which obviously is completely against the Mosaic law. And they just said, this is too crazy. And everybody leaves. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, you're leaving too? Now, we're going to come back to this idea of the leaving thing. But I just want you to ponder this. You realize that the manna in the wilderness, this bread from heaven that God provided, is an incredible picture of Jesus. Uh, when you go back to the Exodus scene, uh, I, I gave you four ideas last week, and I just want to review them really quick, and then I'll give you a few more. We mentioned last week that in the wilderness, in the Old Testament, you realize what the manna was a picture of is dependency and trust. That every day I had to trust that God was going to provide the manna. Why? Because it would never last beyond the day. So I had to live in an attitude of dependence upon God saying, God, I, I need food. And I'm trusting that tomorrow there's going to be this stuff on the ground. And I'm going to be able to use it to make some bread. So, so God, I, I can't hoard it. I have to trust you. You realize that's true in our spiritual life? That we are called to live in dependency and trust upon the provision of Jesus? That, that I am to come before him and say, Jesus, oh, I need you every hour, every moment of every single day. That, that I can't just hoard it. This is not uh, checked in, check in down at the church house on Sunday morning and uh, you know, stamp your card and then you can go live your life and maybe, maybe go to midweek service you know, to be refueled up for the week. You realize that that's not Christianity. Christianity is, hey, I need daily provision. 
which takes you to the other idea, which is I had to gather it daily. So in the, in the old, right, I had to go out and I had to gather this stuff and grab an omar of this and, and I take this and, and, and make, make my bread for the day. You realize that's true in our spiritual lives. That Jesus is the bread from heaven, meaning what? That, uh, I don't know about you, I, I don't eat on Sundays and then fast the rest of the week. Obviously, right? But, I mean, I, I don't do that. Why? Because I love food. And I'm going to eat every single day. In fact, not just every single day, multiple times a day. Do you recognize that should be true in our spiritual life? That when we're talking about the life that we get to experience with Christ, right? how, how often does a branch abide in the vine? Well, that's a dumb question. It, it, it's not about time at all because it spends all of its time abiding in the, in the vine. And if you expect to have any life within you as a branch, then there never can be a moment where you're separated from the vine, which is the life source. Well, how, much should I be, how often should I be partaking of Jesus? Well, that is the dumbest question ever. Why? You're telling me that you want a single moment where you're not abiding in Jesus? That you want some me time where you can unplug and, and separate? What are you talking about? Do you know what that means? That means death. So I need to daily come before the Lord in provision. I need to daily come to the word of God for my, for my food. I need to daily bask in his presence. I need to daily abide in him. That this isn't, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be spiritual on Sundays and Wednesday nights. But then the rest of the week, I can do whatever I want. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a daily, just pressing in and living, abiding in the vine kind of stuff. Not only that, but the picture of the man in the old, you recognize, is a picture of the sufficiency for every need that you have. Do you recognize that Jesus is sufficient for every need that you have? And obviously, 2 Peter 1.3, I quote it all the time, but Peter says that Jesus is all things that we need for life and for godliness. That you have literally been given and supplied all that you need. What is it? Jesus. And just as the manna was sufficient to meet the need of that hour, Jesus is sufficient to meet the need of this hour. I think it's beautiful. And again, there's a beautiful picture that the whole thing was supernatural. That you, you could not describe the manna in the wilderness through natural means. God provided every single day. In the heat of the day, it would melt. On the Sabbath day, it would not show up. So you had to gather twice as much the day before. Right? The whole thing was a picture of God's supernatural provision. Do you know what Jesus should be in my life? Totally inexplainable to the world around me. That when someone looks at my life, they just go, I, I don't know how to explain how you're living. Because it's not natural. That the only way I can explain your life is that the Holy Spirit must be moving inside of your life. And the only explanation, as Ian Thomas says, for your life should be Jesus. That when someone looks at you, they are so dumbfounded by how you are living and how you have this, that, that attitude and how you're loving all those people who drive you crazy. And yet, how are you pulling that off? I don't think you can. So it must be Jesus. Yeah, we call those people Christians. Now, there's some other interesting parallels. One is the fact that, that the men in the wilderness, you realize, satisfied a temporal, physical need. I mean, hey, it, 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 you know, it put off the starvation stuff. Hey, it, it satisfied their, their stomach cravings, but it was temporal and it was physical. Do you realize Jesus, who is the bread from heaven, the bread of life, 
satisfies an eternal spiritual need. That's awesome. Uh, the man in the wilderness delayed physical death. If you don't eat, you're going to die, right? So partaking of this, it delayed the physical death. Everyone dies physically. So eating delays that. Doesn't that make sense? If you want to speed that up, just quit eating. <laughs> Give it a couple days. You'll find out that you're getting there a lot faster, right? So the physical manna was, was uh, delaying the physical death. But think about our spiritual manna named Jesus, this bread from heaven. Do you realize it's not that he's delaying physical death. He has conquered spiritual death. He's literally removed the spiritual death. That's awesome. Uh, the man in the wilderness sustained life, but Jesus imparts life. Uh, the manna was only for this nation called Israel, and it was only for 38 years. But isn't it beautiful that the bread that has come down from heaven, this bread of life named Jesus, is not just for a group called Israel. It is for all people in all times, and it's eternal. It's not just for 38 years kind of stuff. This is forever, that he is the bread of life eternally. It's interesting that the manna in the wilderness could not be explained, which is why we called it manna. What is it? And Jesus says, I'm not that. Because I'm exposing, unveiling, hey, I'm revealing myself. I am telling you exactly what this is. So it's interesting. There's all these great parallels and some contrast between the two. So that brings us to this. Isn't it interesting that we live in a world that is constantly looking for something to satisfy. We're constantly looking, and in all the wrong places, for that which will fill us up. And here's a, just a profound thought. You recognize that being full is different than being satisfied. Ah, you're really hungry. Oh, I need something to eat. And you open up your refrigerator, and there's all this food. Now, you're hungry. So logically, all you need to do is pop some food in your mouth, and that'll be satiated. But you open up your refrigerator, and there's all this food there, and you're like, nothing. There is nothing there. <laughs> no, there's a lot there that'll make you full, but for whatever reason, none of it seems to satisfy. Have you ever eaten Cheetos? It's been, it's been years since I've eaten Cheetos. But, uh, or chips, or any, any of that kind of stuff, like, you know, a popcorn, right? You could, you could start eating popcorn, and popcorn, 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 popcorn. You can be full of popcorn, and you're still not full. You're not satisfied. So you just keep pop, 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 pop right? Why? Because you can be full but not satisfied. It's interesting to me, uh, when you look at verse uh, 26 in the passage, uh, John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus is looking at the crowd, right? This is the next morning when they said, hey, give us some more bread. He says, you're seeking me, not because you've seen the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled or full. You realize they were full, but they were not satisfied. 
John D. Rockefeller was once asked, uh, who's this incredibly wealthy man, they once asked him, how much money is enough money? Now, he had all that he ever would need. He could have bought anything he ever wanted. He was considered the, one of the richest men of his time. It'd be like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett of today. I mean, he just, you know, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in, in old currency. And they just said, hey, when, are, when, when is someone full? Or when, when are you filled up with money? When are you just, uh, satisfied? Now, he was full. Uh, he had all, he had more than he ever needed. But his answer to the question, how much money is enough, he goes, just a little bit more. Do you realize that is the bane of our society? Well, how, how much drugs is enough? Well, just one, one more hit. Just, just, just one more experience. Just one more toy. Just one more experience. Just one more. And you realize that we have a culture who is filling itself up, but is never satisfied. We are drowning in noise. We are drowning in social media. We are drowning in communication. We are drowning in sports. We are drowning in entertainment, but none of it satisfies. We have a culture who's drowning in drugs. We have a culture who's drowning in promiscuity. We have a culture who's drowning in, but none of it's satisfying. Now we're filled up, but we're not satisfied. It's interesting that anything outside of Jesus may make you full, but will never make you satisfied. And I think, I think this passage is so phenomenal in the fact that here is this group of people who is longing for more. Why? They're not satisfied. They're full, but they're not satisfied. And Jesus is offering that which satisfies. He says, I, I know you're looking for a piece of bread. Let me give you something better. I am the bread of life. Just partake of me, and you'll be satisfied. I, I love what Isaiah uh, 55 says. Uh, verse 2, the prophet says, Why do you spend money on what is not bread, and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Isaiah is saying, do you recognize you're, you're pursuing all this stuff. You're, you're trying to seek something that satisfies. But the verse right before that, verse 1, says this. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is making himself available. Hey, all that you need is right there. I will satisfy your every need. It is a fountain of loving waters. And yet, what are you doing? You're, you're wasting your money trying to seek something that will satisfy, and yet it will never satisfy. And here is something being offered, and you can't buy it with money. Isn't it a phenomenal thought that here is Jesus looking at the crowd, offering himself, saying, hey, I'm, I'm exactly what you need, and I am that which satisfies and it doesn't even cost a penny. And yet the crowd was more interested in what Jesus could do for them than who he is. 
and just missed it. Here's a question for our souls, but are we satisfied with anything outside of Jesus? Are we looking for something to fill us up outside of him? Are, are we seeking something that will nourish and something that will provide and something that will somehow bring joy and happiness or whatever? But you realize if it's outside of Jesus, it will not last. It may have a momentary satisfaction, but it quickly dries up and fades. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And isn't it amazing that, that God created our bodies with this thing called hunger? That we crave something? That, you know, throughout the day, your stomach starts to growl. It's like, hi, I'm here. You realize how brilliant that is? Because you need food to eat. I'm sorry, you need food to live. Right? If you're going to live, if you're going to sustain the life that you have, now, the food doesn't produce the life. We get that. The food sustains the life you have, right? So if I'm going to continue living, I have to eat food. So God has really created our bodies in such a way where that which we need to sustain the life is brought to remembrance. So our stomach growls and we're like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to eat, right? So we go and we grab something to eat. Why? Because we need to sustain life. He's done that with us spiritually. He's put something within it that just hungers and craves and thirsts. Why? To remind us, hi, hi, hi. You need something to sustain you. Again, and if you don't have true life, you're going to try to fill that with everything else around you. But God has given us a hunger. The question is, am I hungering and thirsting after the right thing? It's interesting the more and more you eat junk food, the more and more you desire junk food. The more and more you eat healthy food, from what I've been told, <laughs> the less you actually want to eat junk food. And there is a truth in that. Like, I love green smoothies. But when I first had a green smoothie, I was like, this is nasty. Tastes like dirt. <laughs> Who would want to eat this stuff? But as I kept doing it, I was like, whoa, 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 this is actually really good. To the point where you offer me, like, a candy bar, I'm not interested. I just, it doesn't even taste good to me anymore. Now, I do like a good Reese's, so I do have my downfalls. A Fig Newton once in a great, you know, blue moon maybe, right? But it's, it's interesting that the more you have the real stuff, the less you desire the imitation. And Jesus says, hey, I'm the real deal here. Hey, I am the bread of life. If you would just partake and eat of me, I will satisfy and I will sustain. Now, I do love the fact that, by the way, that he is the bread of life, which means he's the one that sustains life. Now, later on in the book of John, he clarifies and says, not only do I sustain life, I am life itself. This is phenomenal. Think about it. So the question then becomes, do I have an insatiable appetite and a desire for Jesus? Because if you don't, there's a spiritual problem in our hearts. I love what Andrew Murray said. He, he, he once commented, he says, you ask me if I'm satisfied. And he says, with every fiber of my being, I would tell you that, that I am satisfied in Jesus at this very moment. But let us never hesitate to say this is only the beginning. Because he began to recognize that Jesus satisfies. And yet as I 
as I'm satisfied, it causes me to want more of him, which means I need to seek and pursue and desire righteousness and seek the kingdom of God. Why? Because I recognize that is the only real thing that's going to satisfy my soul. So if I, if I begin to recognize that, that my heart has this propensity towards something outside of Jesus, I have a spiritual problem. Because I'm looking for something to satisfy that will never satisfy. Raven Hill used to say that entertainment is a devil, devil's substitute for joy. That when I'm looking for joy, what do I tend to do? I turn to sports. I turn to entertainment. I turn to this. Why? Because I'm, I'm looking for joy but joy is never found in that. It's a substitute for the real thing. It's a candy bar, not an apple kind of stuff. Jesus says, I'm the real deal. Partake of me. And I will not only satisfy, I will sustain. Uh, Job 23, verse 12 says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Is that true about you? Do you desire and treasure his word? more than your daily food. I rarely ever miss a meal. But hey, I can skip this for days and not realize it. Why is that? I think it's because there's a spiritual, there's a spiritual problem in my heart that I need God to somehow give me a greater desire for this. See, what would happen if just as my stomach would growl to, to remind me that I needed to eat, what if my soul would just, I'd wake up in the morning going, oh, I have to partake of him. That all throughout the day, I was just like, oh, I'm hungry and thirsting after him. I couldn't go down to, I couldn't fall asleep unless I spent at least a few moments pondering his goodness. Will you be obsessed? I know. We call those people Christians. And I love the fact that in the passage, Jesus did not patter or schmooze the crowd who was self-seeking. They're merely looking for the fulfillment of their own desires. Instead, he calls them to surrender and self-denial, even if it means the crowd left. Because Jesus does and will not give counterfeits. If you look back at verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why? Because he's the real deal. And he fully satisfies. And he fully sustains. <clears throat> uh, let me just give you a couple other quick thoughts. As you follow the crowd through the passage, it's really intriguing to me. At the very beginning of the passage... I think we'd all be applauding the crowd. Here's this massive crowd. They're following and they're seeking Jesus. Woo, that's awesome. And obviously as a communicator, wouldn't that be awesome to have 5,000 men plus women and children following you around, just hanging on your every word? You realize Jesus was not impressed by the size of the crowds. He does not care about numbers. He's interested in one single thing, hearts and motives. And are they in the right position? And Jesus, with compassion for this crowd, serves them and gives them physically what they need. But then they start to seek something from him that he's not. He's, he's not a vending machine. He's not a, I put a coin in and I get some food out. 
He's not, I come to God in prayer and I ask for this and he just gives it to me. You realize that he's not just a Santa Claus in the sky who's wanting to dispense stuff to you when you ask for it. He wants relationship. He wants to be your life. You realize that even just the idea of bread, the whole concept of bread is that when you take food and you ingest it, it permeates every cell of your body and it literally brings life to every aspect of your body. Jesus says, do you know what I want to be? I want to be that in your life. I don't want to just have a piece of your life. I want to be your life. I don't want to just sit in your heart watching blood pump by. I, I, I want to permeate every aspect of your being so that I become the essence of your life, that I am in you and you are in me kind of stuff. And Jesus says, what you're looking for is you're looking for a handout. Hey, what you're wanting, oh dear crowd, is, is, you're, is you're wanting a vending machine. He goes, I'm not a vending machine. Well, give us a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign because I'm it. You want a sign? Here I am. Because I am that bread that came down from heaven. Hey, what you were going after in the wilderness did not fully satisfy you. I will fully satisfy you. And of course, they misunderstand. And Jesus, let me clarify for you. You're going to have to eat my flesh and you're going to have to drink my blood. Now, again, that's offensive. By the way, he's not talking communion. I mean, you can draw some communion parallels, but you realize he's not talking communion. He's talking to a crowd. He's not talking to the disciples. There's, you know, we, we can go through that later, but it's interesting that even though it has the communion kind of language, and again, there's some neat parallels in that, but it seems like he's not dealing with communion. What he's saying, though, is just as you ingest bread, I need, you need to ingest my life. If you want eternal life, I'm it. You're not going to find it anywhere else. So come, come looking for it. It's right here. Partake of me. So again, here's the crowd who wants immediate relief from their immediate troubles, but they want it at no cost to them. Jesus, just give us free bread. And again, Jesus will not cater to that. He's not going to cater to selfish desires and whims He's calling him to surrender in self-denial and saying, if you are really interested in having life, you're going to have to give up yourself and partake of me. And isn't it interesting, uh, when you look over at verse uh, 66, he says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And the next verse says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? And it's interesting, in the Greek, the emphasis is basically, here's 5,000 men plus women and children, and every single person left except the 12. You realize in our modern culture, we would look at that and say, that's ministry failure. <laughs> I mean, if you had a mega church of fifteen to 20,000 people, right, and you have this big potluck, woo! And at the end of the potluck, people are like, give us more. And you're like, you're going to have to give up that selfish desire and you're going to have to like partake of me and everyone leaves and now you have a church of 12. We would kind of, I think in our culture, we would look at that and go, yeah, that, that preacher has a problem. He's obviously offensive because if, if all those people left him, there must be some, some issue. Do you know how fickle we are as a, as a people? Why? Because we're looking for what Jesus can do for us rather than seeking him for who he is and for what the fact that he is that which sustains and satisfies. 
Now, it's interesting, Simon Peter answers that question. He says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter says, we're not going anywhere. We know that you are the Messiah. You are the only means of eternal life. And though it doesn't make sense to us, we're going to eat you. We're going to partake of you. Now, let me give you three options. And we'll just close with this. In the passage, there are three responses. Uh, and you have to pick one. It seems like there's only three responses. Uh, there is the response of the crowd. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the testimony. They've, they've heard the witness. Here's Jesus standing before them saying, hey, I am that which satisfies. I, I am that which will sustain your life. Hey, I'm all that you need for life and for godliness. Will you partake? And they say, nope. And they reject. Now you have that option. The other option is the disciples, like Peter, who said, well, where else are we going to go? There is no means of life. There is no salvation outside of you. So I, I'm not going to seek satisfaction anywhere else because I recognize that it will never sustain. It only, it only leads to death. So Lord, to whom shall we go? We're not leaving. Hey, we're going to get tight. We're going to partake of you, and we're going to let you sink down into our life and nourish every part of us. That's an option. Interestingly, there's a third option. And it shows up, uh, look at verse 70 and 71. Uh, Jesus said to them, have I not chosen you the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now John brings clarity to this. He said he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Do you recognize that Jesus, in fact, if you, if you go back, uh, look at verse uh, 64. Uh, Jesus says to the crowd, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now get this. John clarifies and says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. That is the most mind-boggling verse. That here is Jesus, he goes up to the mountain to spend time in prayer to seek, to seek from the Lord, from the Father, the 12 that he's going to call to follow him. And he gets to Judas Iscariot, and it's like the Father says, oh, I want you to pick him. Now, he's going to betray you, but I want him in. You recognize that Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him. And isn't it an amazing picture of God's mercy, and grace, and kindness to let him follow and probably with the hopes that he would change? But, but suddenly you have a third option in the passage. Because here is Judas, and we know that Judas has rejected Jesus. He's betrayed Jesus. And yet he is mimicking that, or he's mimicking one who has chosen Jesus. He's still, he's still in the church. He's still following. He's still doing all the religious things. He still knows when to stand up and when to sit down. And yet in his heart, he's rejected Jesus. 
And isn't it an interesting thought that we could be in a church and we could go, Woo, Jesus, with our voices and in our hearts we've rejected him. By the way, those aren't Christians. Because merely coming to a church does not make you a Christian. Just like walking into a garage does not make you a car. <laughs> or eating a Cheeto doesn't make you a Cheeto. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Do you realize that merely saying, Woo, I'm a Christian, doesn't make you a Christian? Going to church on Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. Paying the preacher $50 might help you become a Christian, but it's not going to make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian? If you actually have the life within you. And if you don't have the life, you're not a Christian. In fact, Jesus said that in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. You want to know what life is? That they might know you, the one true God. And the word there, know, the word gnosko, is not just knowing something intellectually, it's knowing it experientially. That I have relationship. So you begin to recognize then that I can reject life. I can, that's my option. And I will die and I will go to hell. But hey, I have that option if I want to. I could embrace life and partake of Jesus and he will satisfy and he will sustain because he is life itself. He is the bread that came down from heaven. Or I could try to fake it. And I can show up to church services and I can go to Sunday school class and I can teach or preach. But if it's never affected my life, if he is not in my life, if, he, if I'm not partaking of him, if I'm not then I'm just like the crowd in a different location. Jesus says, I have the bread. Partake! Are you partaking? Are you full or are you satisfied? Or maybe a better question, what are you satisfied with? Are you hungering and thirsting after him? Is your delight in him are you, like Andrew Murray, satisfied with Jesus, but yet craving for more of him? He is the bread which has come down from heaven. And we are to eat of him. He's to permeate every aspect of our life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Because he is all that we need for life and for godliness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need life. And Lord, even us in the church at times seem to be full, but not satisfied. And we can hear a whole bunch of truth and we can do our Bible reading plan every morning and we can spend time in prayer and we can fill up our schedules. But Lord, if it's merely duty and religious activity, it's still going to lead to death because that stuff doesn't sustain. It does not bring life. It's a person who brings life. Lord, I want to partake of you. And it's not that the religious duties and all that kind of stuff is not important. It's just, it's not the life. Well, what would it look like if you were my life? It's you whom I partook of. And it wasn't just 
you know, something I did down on Sunday mornings. It's something I, I lived in every moment of every single day, that I was a branch abiding in the vine, that I would eat and partake of you moment by moment by moment by moment, that I just, oh, I just could not get enough of your word because your word is truth. And somehow it satisfies this, this inner craving that I have. The Lord, that times of prayer wouldn't just be, well, dear Lord, it's, oh, it's time for intimacy and communion and in greater relationship with you. Well, Lord, what would it look like if you were the thought upon every moment of my day? What, what if you were the, the undercurrent of everything I said? What if you were the motive behind every attitude? Lord, is it possible that you could invade every cell of my body? That you could permeate my life in such a way through your Holy Spirit? That my life was not my own? For me to live is Christ? Well, what would it look like for this world not to see Nathan? What would happen if this world just saw the evidence of you oozing out of every pore in my body? Well, what if my life was truly inexplainable to the world around me? That the only way people could explain my life would be Jesus. And when they ask, well, how on earth are you living that way? Oh, I'm eating some good bread. It's bread that came down from heaven. It nourishes and it satisfies and it sustains. Lord, don't allow me to be satisfied with anything outside of you. Lord, I don't want to crave a single thing outside of you. Lord, would you be the consumption of our hearts, of our minds, of our attitudes, of our language. Lord, I don't want to be a Judas who saw all that was going on and, and gave it lip service and nodded his head in the right places, but his heart wasn't in on it. He was not eating the bread Lord, I want, I, want to, I want to be a Christian who eats and partakes of you. Lord, thank you, thank you for even that reality. And thank you that you were not in the past bread of life, but you were and you are and you will be the bread of life. That this thing is present tense. So would you present tensely be the bread of heaven, the bread of life in me today. We love you. Let's give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.